Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome back to Top of the Hill. I'm your host, Greg Hill. In this hour, how will history judge President Obama's economic policies? 860-275-7266. Hilda in Westbrook, Maine, you're on Top of the Hill. Hi, Greg. Long-time listener, first-time caller, and I'll take my answer off the air. Uh, answer to what? Oh, I am so nervous. I've been listening to your really great shows since 1997, but I never called because I didn't really like my phone. I didn't like the way my voice sounded on it, so I certainly didn't want to call my favorite radio show. And then after a while, I realized something else was happening with my phone. It was, like, evil or something. You know, Hilda, uh, this segment is really about Obama's policies. So then I realized that my phone had given me, like, an infection or something, so I decided to destroy it. But by then, I was almost too weak to do anything. Hilda, we're going to have to move on. So I set a trap. I filled a bucket with common household solvents and put on protective gloves. And then I pretended there was someone at the door. And I said, oh, I'm so glad to see you. Maybe you can take my horrible phone to the junkyard and put it in the car crusher. And when the evil phone came flying at me, I grabbed it and plunged it into the bucket. And then it died. Hilda, we hear you. Uh, Thank you for calling Top of the Hill. We're going to move along. Obama's economic policies. I'm still here. I I thought I'd drop your line. Oh, well, when the phone died, some of its power came into me. I control your talk show now, Greg. Coming up next, will President Trump put an end to human sacrifices inside the Large Hadron Collider? (sighs) That's your topic? And now he's been on hold with the Clark Howard Show since May 2013. Colin McEnroe. That's right. We're going to do an actual Colin show today. And I guess, first of all, I'm kind of laughing because one of, one of the reasons for doing this was that theoretically most of the producers were going to be off today. Well, they're, yeah, in fact, Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McNichol are off today. Although I have like five producers now. We have all these great producers who are helping out with the show. So in the control room, we've got Kyone Wolf, who's back from her trip to Ireland, uh, Josh Nalea. And then in the phone room, the producer room, well, Katie Tolarski, the big kid, uh, is uh, the producer of the sort of the head producer of today's show. Uh, and then Lydia Brown is manning, uh, manning the phone. So if you call today at 860-275-7266, you get to talk to producer Lydia Brown from where we live. It's like, you're, you know, you're getting a little of everything today. So, and let me just quickly also tell you what my philosophy of phones and phone calls on the radio happens to be. So, for 16 years, I was at a station, a commercial station, where we took a lot of phone calls. And, and the callers even kind of, like, and there were people who called every day. They became kind of famous. They had nicknames. They had identities. And that was all very fun. When I came here, you know, the, the public radio philosophy, I mean, what we're doing today almost feels kind of illegal at public radio, because the public radio philosophy is you take a topic, and then you find people who are very knowledgeable about it to add value to it, right? That's the basic thing that happens on most of public radio. You, you take an idea, a topic, you find people who know a lot about it who can then enlarge the audience's understanding of whatever the topic is. So, and we, I have these great producers. They do this fabulous job of getting those kinds of guests. So I don't take that many calls here 
because you know I mean we have these great guests. Um, so, so, but I also have realized, particularly during this election campaign, that people are they need to talk. People have a lot pent up in them. They have, they feel like they need to say something. They're in the middle of some kind of weird historical event. They don't know what kind of historical event this is, but they know it's a departure. Uh, it's a departure from the norm of presidential politics. Uh, they wonder how much of a permanent departure it is. So I'm just kind of going to make this show available to you guys today. We didn't book any guests at all. And uh, you can call in and talk about it. I certainly have some ideas that I'm going to begin setting up in just a second here. The number, once again, is 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. So how did the day begin? <laughs> how did the day begin today in the presidential race? Because you know it's going to begin on some bizarre moment. So, uh, uh, And so Donald Trump, who nominally is kind of, I mean, I know we've said this before, but nominally he's kind of trying to pivot again and maybe be a slightly less divisive and polarizing candidate. Oh, we'll talk a little bit as we go on today about why that might be. And, and also maybe try to be the kind of candidate who, as they used to say, in the old days, pre-2016, stays on message. You know, there are fundamental messages you need to get across in a campaign, so you stay on them. So uh, Donald Trump begins his, get, his day by tweeting at 7.20 in the morning. <laughs> I don't even know if I can read this out loud without laughing. Um, Tried watching low-rated Morning Joe this morning. Unwatchable. Morning Mika is off the wall. A neurotic and not very bright mess. And then feeling like he hadn't really quite covered the subject adequately, minutes later, he tweets, Someday, when things calm down, I'll tell the real story of Joe Scarborough and his very insecure longtime girlfriend, Nico Brzezinski, two clowns, exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's some there's some thought that basically, you know, people from the Trump campaign have tried to take over this Twitter account a little bit and do some tweets on this very heavily followed Twitter account that represent actual campaign tweets. That did not happen this morning. Uh, I think we can say that the man himself. So and now why point this out? Well, first of all, although I, I consider many of the things that were in those tweets to be vile calumnies and you know, unworthy of repetition to some degree. I don't like that show either. So, like, at least Donald Trump and I agree about one thing. Uh, but more than that, that's not what he's supposed to be interested in. He's not supposed to be interested on, in whether Morning Joe is a good show or not. He's not supposed to be creating news about whether Morning Joe is a good show or not, or about the personal relationships, romantic or otherwise, between Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski. Those are not part of his campaign. Those are not things you talk about when you are running for president of the United States. They might be the kinds of things that you would talk about if you anticipated losing and having some kind of post campaign media career. And this is something that's being talked about more and more, particularly since the recent refashioning, the latest refashioning of the staffing of the campaign. Suddenly he's got two people, Steve Bannon from Breitbart uh, and Roger Ailes, formerly of Fox, in prominent advisory roles. Bannon is actually, you know, sort of to one of his two campaign managers. Ailes is at minimum coaching him for debates. Who knows what else Ailes is doing? And you know, a lot of people have begun to speculate 
that since this looks so little like an actual presidential campaign, maybe it's not. Maybe it's something else. And maybe at the end of this, he's going to try to create some kind of media entity um, that would at minimum compete with Fox News, you know, that he's that there'll be Trump TV or something like that. that and, and when you look at something like this where he begins his day randomly or not randomly ripping into two people on another TV show, you know, it kind of lends a little bit of credibility to that whole idea. All right. So uh, we're happy to hear from you today. We're going to be talking a lot about these kinds of things. And that, that's not the only thing. That's not the only thing that let off the, the day. There, there are always corresponding problems for the Clinton campaign. The New York Post, uh, I don't know how much validity or credibility to attach to this. I actually did do a lot of a lot more in the time permitting research into this to see if I could kind of pin down how true this was. But uh, the New York Post has got a big story claiming that Huma Abedin, who is one of Hillary Clinton's closest confidants, has played roles uh, for her both politically and within the State Department, uh, has been involved in a radical Muslim journal. I mean, this just seems so much like a New York Post story. But there may be a little bit of truth to this anyway. That apparently Abedin's mother uh, runs this uh, this, I don't know whether it's it's fair to call it a, a radical Muslim journal or even what that means, but runs this journal in which there are positions articulated, particularly about women's rights and stuff like that, that are um, contrary to the kinds of positions that Clinton espouses. I don't think this is much of a story. I don't think it's got a lot of traction. I think there are a lot of stories that could have real problems, cause real problems for Hillary Clinton. I don't think this is one of them. But that's how the day began. It began with those two stories. Since then, other things have happened. This is the race that never sits still. It morphs all the time. I'm going to talk also a little bit about where the race seems to be right now, at least numerically as we go along here. But, um, yeah, let's go to the phones here. Uh, We'll start with Rob in Clinton. Hi, Rob. You're on the air. Uh, Yes. uh, I was going to um, raise a point and a question. Donald Trump being the businessman he is and proclaiming to be such, um, you know, I, I, I always look for the angle and rule number one, follow the money. So what is his uh, expected return? Where does he expect to make up the millions of dollars that he says he's spending here? And how does he expect to do it? Um, one could argue in the uh, Bush administration, they went to war, they made out, you know, <laughs> um, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, Bush and Cheney, who, who supplied supplies for the war, etc. But, you know, what does Trump stand on that? And the other th- just the other comment and question uh, in the book, uh, The Art of the Deal, um, that I haven't read, I'll be honest with you, but somewhere in there, I'm sure he talks about how to close the deal, promising, you know, and it probably says you need to promise anything, say anything, and do anything to close the deal. And uh, someone I'm hoping would grasp into that and apply it to his his campaign and, and, and point out that, you know, whatever he's saying, it's to close the deal, not because he really, truly might provide that. And those are my two comments. All right. Well, so to your first comment, I mean, I think you have to sort of uh, keep separate the private fortunes of Donald Trump and what he, what a Trump administration would do. Although, let me say this, and I do want to be fair, fair enough so that I irritate Hillary Clinton supporters out there, and maybe fair enough so that a few Trump supporters call in today. Boy, if you are, are a Trump supporter, I'd love to hear from you, 860-275-7266. I think one thing that is fair to say, although it's not always something that people like to hear, is that in terms of mo- monetizing post-presidency, um, what a presidency 
can provide you with. The Clintons are kind of, they represent a new model, really. Now, some of that is because they're kind of different from a lot of people, especially from the Bush, uh, the Bush family. were a very wealthy family to begin with. Uh, so each of the Bush presidencies, you know, wasn't necessarily, there wasn't a huge need afterwards to monetize it. Um, Reagan was, you know, a medium wealthy guy by the time he got to be elected president. Um, and post-presidency also took some gigantic speaker's fees. But, you know, maybe, once again, not a guy already had Rancho Mirage or whatever it's called. <laughs> the Clintons, of course, according to Hillary Clinton, they were dead flat broke, not just broke but in debt at the end of the Clinton presidency. They're worth now, by many estimates, about $80 million. I think she's worth about $30 million. He's worth about $50 million. I mean, it's hard to nail these things down. I don't know how rock solid that is. So that means between basically January of 2001 and now, you know, they really have run up a tremendous amount of money. So if, in fact, let's say the New York Times did do an analysis of Donald Trump's debt, uh, which uh, they hired a company called, I think, Red Vision to look into that over the weekend, or they published the results over the weekend. And, you know, he's got a lot of debt. He's got more debt than he has actually talked about. Some of that is because the questionnaires that are put up, the disclosure questionnaires are worded a certain way that maybe doesn't anticipate somebody with such octopus-like business interests as Donald Trump. But he apparently has a lot of debt. Uh, Who knows what his financial health is? He won't um, release the tax returns, so we don't really know. But the Clintons do illustrate that, I mean, they don't really illustrate what you can do after you lose an election. They illustrate what you can do after you win two elections, which is you can really run up a lot of money. You can become quite wealthy. And there are Clinton detractors will say, yeah, and then sometimes, sometimes you do that by triangulating interest, particularly when you, you know, get back as Secretary of State and you've got people giving money to the foundation and then there's other people paying various uh, amounts of money to, to Bill Clinton. They, they have very successfully taken the notion of what a presidency is worth in the post-presidency years and explored it to its outer limits, Be- partly because, yeah, I mean, they, they came out of a different background. I think when Clinton was governor of Arkansas, I think he was the lowest paid governor in America out of the 50 states. Uh, I may have that wrong. Um, so <laughs> it's kind of a sense, maybe starting around 2001, it's just not going to be that way anymore. So I suppose if Trump looks at that and says, well, I could lose and my brand is going to be worth more anyway. So that may be one of the reasons that he's willing to explore the possibility of losing. Uh, our number, 860-275-7266. Uh, happy to talk about uh, any any aspect of the campaign that intrigues you or worries you right now. Uh, eight, oh, there was another half to his question, and I went on so long about the first part, I can't remember what the second half was. Uh, if anybody in the producer's room remembers the second half of his question, just type it out for me. Meanwhile, 860-275-7266. That's the number to call. The lines are going to be open all day, well, not all day, from 1 to 2, uh, from 1 to 2 here in the afternoon. If you're listening on a podcast or you're listening at 8 p.m., don't call in. But if you're listening between 1 and 2, yeah, you can call in, 860-275-7266. No guests to get in your way. Um, all right, so here's Greg in Hamden. Hi. Hi, how you doing? All right. I have a question. Well, I have, I have two things. Uh, one, I find it interesting that um, we have a campaign going on, and one person running the campaign on the Democratic side is running it the way it normally is. It's kind of what the show is about. And Mr. Trump isn't really using money paying for advertising. He's calling into the media so he doesn't have to spend any money. And 
they just talk about them all day, and then it goes into the next day. And is it going to get to the point where they're, well, they'll stop taking those calls and say, maybe you've got to pay for this? Yeah, I, th- I, I think it's unlikely um, that, that, that that'll stop. I listened to a really interesting interview over the weekend on a podcast called Masters in Politics. It's a Bloomberg pod- podcast. It was an old one, but it was Trevor Noah. Uh, and uh, Trevor Noah, who, you know, I mean, I haven't really sort of grabbed onto him as the host of The Daily Show. In this interview, he's really smart, and he has a lot of interesting things to say. But at one point, the interviewer said, would you take Trump as a guest? And he said, yes. Yes, I would, of course. He goes, I don't think he'll come on. Um, but I would take him as a guest. I, I, I think you can't tell the media not to interview one of the two party nominees. And there's a little bit of a tension here, too, because, you know, on the one hand, yeah, you've got Trump doing all this unconventional stuff and getting a lot of so-called earned media instead of paying for it. Uh, and on the other hand, though, you've got Hillary Clinton who won't have a press conference, um, you know, which in its own way, is troubling, maybe as troubling as all this so-called earned media that Trump gets. You know, I mean, one thing that Trump has been willing to do is make himself available. He doesn't really care. He does, he'll talk to people who are hostile to him. He'll talk to people who like him. He doesn't, you know, he'll do press conferences. He'll go on shows. You know, Clinton is very, very selective about who she'll talk to, when and where. And she's not doing press conferences. And I, so I don't know. I don't know how we wind up playing the referee in that situation. But, Greg, if you have any advice, uh, we'll take it. Uh, no, I don't. But the other thing that the other question that I have is, do you think the two parties will change with who they will allow to come onto their ticket in the future? You had someone go on the Democratic ticket and not really run as a Democrat. He was still running sort of like an independent. And Mr. Trump, who hasn't been in politics before, is kind of causing a little bit of havoc for that party as well. Do you think they'll actually say, well, you need to be in our system for a little bit longer before just running? The um, it's a great question. First of all, it's a really good question. And I I would just declare my own prejudices about this. You can put me squarely in the out of 318 million people in this country. Why are these the two people we have to choose from? I'm not really wild about either one of the choices. Uh, I'm considerably more frightened by the choice of Donald Trump than I am. In fact, as a matter of fact, when I, I look at Hillary Clinton, I mean, she's never anybody I would have wanted as the Democratic nominee. She's not anybody that I can vote for with great enthusiasm. But I kind of think she might be an okay president. (laughs) At least I I was telling myself that this morning. You know, I mean, I I can point to some reasons why I think, if pressed, why I think she might be an okay president. But certainly she's not my first choice. So, I mean, each of the party, each party has flaws in its nominating process. In, In a weird way, the flaws are kind of inverses of one another. So the Republicans are looking, Republican establishment people are looking at this cycle, and obviously they never want this to happen again, you know, for all kinds of reasons, starting with the fact that they're probably going to lose really badly, but they never want to have this happen again. You have to be careful about changing your rules so that you don't fight the last war. I mean, the other probability is that they're, you know, um, there's probably not going to be a candidate quite like Trump coming along in, anywhere in the near future. But anyway, as the Republicans look at the, this past cycle, one thing they think is, you know what? We're not hierarchical enough. You know, the Democrats, oddly enough, are more hierarchical than we are. They have all these superdelegates. You know, they just ex- seem to exercise more control over the process, particularly in terms of uh, also uh, having fewer open primaries. 
uh, where independents can vote and stuff like that. So, um, I, you know, they're looking at this, and, and I mean, I've heard Republican consultants say this, uh, not in public, but they're sort of saying, well, maybe we need more superdelegates. Maybe, maybe we need to have a less open process. Because if you let every Tom, Dick, and Harry uh, decide who's going to be the nominee, look what just happened. So they really never want that to happen again. Uh, now, you know, how much they really can materially alter their process at the end of all this uh, is I, I maybe a more internal question than anything else. But if they lose and lose badly, which seems probable, but, you know, not definite, um, I would assume they will sort of change some things about their nomination process and probably with the goal of allowing central party leadership, whatever that amounts to, to exercise a little bit more control over things. Now, the Democrats kind of have the opposite problem, right? I mean, there's a lot of perception that this process was too closed, that it was tilted in favor of Hillary Clinton to an extreme degree. I mean, the original plan, quote unquote, it seemed to be that she would have almost no opponent. She'd have Jim Webb. She'd have uh, Martin O'Malley. She'd have Lincoln Chafee. You know, she'd have these easily disposable stooges. uh, And then she'd be done. And then this guy comes who's not an actual member of the Democratic Party and runs a very strong campaign against her, uh, which ends at the convention with a lot of, you know, news about how see, I'm trying to avoid the word rigged, but how tilted in favor of Clinton this actually was and how prejudiced in favor of Clinton the central party leadership was that the National Committee was doing a lot of things to ensure the candidacy of Clinton. And, you know, I don't think anybody has a great feeling about that. You want that process to be more open. You want people to proceed on a level playing field, at least when you look at it that way. Um so, but I mean, so that's the paradox, right? That's the irony. The Republicans look at it and go, well, no, maybe you don't want such an open process. Maybe an open process, maybe you need more control. The Democrats are looking what they, at what they just went through and said, saying, well, was that fair? It kind of doesn't seem fair somehow. Maybe it needs to be fairer. So it's possible that they'll both change. Uh, and if they do change, they don't have much choice but to change in entirely opposite directions. All right. Why don't we take a quick break? We've got a whole board full of calls up here. We'll get to those when we come back. If you're lying on the beach with the trances to going, kick off the sand flies, honey, the love still flowing. If it says forget it, but your heart's still smoking, call me at the station. The lights are open. All right, we're back. We're doing something that we have never done before, which is book no guests at all, except you, uh, the listeners. You get to call in, 860-275-7266. You get to bring up what's on your mind. I mean, we're talking about the presidential campaign here, uh, and we do have one person calling up about the gun range in Griswold. I don't know whether that would really fit into what we're talking about so far, but uh, we're talking about the presidential campaign, a campaign that we know that we're, we know we're going through something that is not recognizable to us based on other campaigns we've lived through. But we don't necessarily know what it is instead of those things. Um, I, I promised. And so before we get to Isham and Ann and Susan and uh, Aiden, a uh, bunch of people up on the on the board there. Just give me a couple of seconds here just to kind of check in with you about how the race basically looks. Now, there's lots of ways to try to assess things like this. I worship at the temple of Nate Silver uh, and 538. I, I do believe that they have the best handle on it, even though they caught a lot of flack uh, last year about not seeing or early this year about not seeing the rise of Trump. 
but since May, I think they've you know had a very good understanding of what's going on here. So uh, Nate Silver actually yesterday uh, was writing basically that although the national polls may be tightening a little bit in favor of Donald Trump, I mean, Clinton's still leading, but with Trump kind of moving up to a slightly tighter position, the state polls and at this point, the state polls are mainly what you need to look at. I mean, you all know how our electoral votes are awarded. The state polls have become a lot more meaningful than the national polls. And the state polls aren't tightening. So um, so Nate writes, um, Iowa and Nevada have been relative bright spots for Trump, with Clinton leading only narrowly, even in post-convention surveys. But those states have only six electoral votes each. Trump's numbers are bad pretty much everywhere else. Since Tuesday, for instance, he's gotten polls showing him down six points in Ohio, nine points in Florida, 11 points in Virginia, and only tied with Clinton in Georgia. Um, he says, I suppose you can count polls showing Trump ahead by double digits in Indiana and Mississippi as good news for him since they're states that could conceivably have gone to Clinton if there were a landslide. Then again, uh, other polls this week showed competitive races in Missouri and Texas. Uh, the 538 model thinks that these polls are consistent with Clinton continuing to hold the lead in the mid to high single digits. You probably wouldn't get a set of results like these if she were up by only five percentage points nationally. So, so Silver is saying, you know, that, that her national lead is probably somewhere around seven, eight, nine points. Um, and what's more important is that in a lot of these key states, I mean, Colorado is like off the table at this point, um, totally uh, in the in the Clinton lane now. So um, so that's sort of where the campaign is. That's not to say it can't change or that it won't change. The most probable moment when it will change uh, will be uh, on September 26th, which will be the first debate. Um, debates have the potential, particularly in a campaign like this, which is drifting hard in one particular direction, uh, of, to at least temporarily rewrite the narrative. It, it may be that we'll go back, you know, years from now, two or three years from now and go, oh, no, this campaign was over in August. It was irretrievably over in August. There was nothing that could have been done. Uh, but it's a mistake to assume that that's the case. So let's go to um, Isham in a car. Am I saying your name correctly? Yes, I think it's Isan. That's okay. Okay. What's on your mind? I hope that I hope that I'm turning the radio off. Okay, turn the radio okay, off. Uh, yeah, this is uh, you know I'm not usually uh, a frequent caller, but uh, thank you for taking my call. I am uh, the kind of uh, number one. I'm disappointed in the way that the Republican campaign is running with uh, Donald Trump and the all these. Uh, nonsense that he made, and none of the Republican Party, especially in the Senate and in the Congress, you know, the Speaker of the House and the uh, Majority Leader, that it will not go and curb his statements. He's, uh, uh, you know, alienating a lot of people from the Republican Party. So that I have uh, uh, voted most of my life as a Republican, I don't see myself voting for Trump the way that he stands say, on immigrants and women and uh, education and, uh, uh, you know, uh, jobs Please, and yeah. all of these things. Basically everything. Clear message. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, yeah, let, let me just uh, I'm, I'm going to let you go just because I don't know. We should have a contest to guess where he is, wherever he is. There's something very alarming is happening there. We may be under attack by outer space armies or something. But, uh, you know, 
uh, we're, we're, we're to begin on this, but just maybe to his initial central point, I don't know how fair it is at this point to expect a Paul Ryan or a Mitch McConnell to say more than they already have. They've already, on two or three occasions, the Judge Curiel um, uh, controversy in particular jumps out. They already have, on two or three occasions, said, no, no, you can't say that. That's that's out of bounds. It's unusual for congressional leaders to denounce a presidential candidate from their own party, even in the terms that they've done so far. I mean, I'm not saying they need they deserve medals for doing that, but they really have to an unusual degree on more than one occasion broken with Trump and said, we can't support a statement like that. It doesn't belong within the bounds of a presidential campaign. Ryan has done that more than McConnell. Um, you'll probably see Ryan do that even more, not necessarily because he's a person of great principle, which he may or may not be, uh, but because the new campaign manager for Donald Trump was the former uh, was the head of Breitbart, which has actively supported Ryan's more conservative primary opponent in Wisconsin. So Trump, when he shook up his campaign, there was sort of a little, you know, he sort of did cock a snook at Paul Ryan and picking this guy because this guy actually was orchestrating some really negative uh, press coverage in Breitbart uh, against Paul Ryan. So you, you might see a little bit more. Uh, edginess from Paul Ryan towards Donald Trump. All right, so we're going to go to uh, Aiden in Wainscott, New York. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Um, yeah, I I wonder what you think of this. Um, I'm I'm wondering if maybe uh, Trump is more like Berlusconi than he is Mussolini, and this is what I mean by that. That that maybe the the weird circumstances that have come together in this campaign may do us a great favor. And that is that we are uh, a country under tremendous change. The world is undergoing tremendous change. Some of it not really good. Uh, we, there, there has been, and there probably will be, continue to be authoritarian answers to that, to this change that's going on, uh, climate change, et cetera. And that that pro uh, probably was in the cards for us, us to be, as a country, to be challenged by the desire of some large part of our population for strong authoritarian kind of rule. And that we might, it might turn out when we look back that to have this clown, very talented clown, very talented in terms of the manipulation of, of media, that he somehow popped in there and nobody would have known it. It wasn't like he was building a movement in the, you know, in the beer halls for generations. It wasn't like he's part of a long-term, ongoing, semi, I, I hesitate to use the word fascist because it's, pro it's probably not a applicable to us, but authoritarian movement. And that it may turn out that this surfaces problems, it surf that people speak out that wouldn't have, that, that we be become aware of the fact that there is the danger when we face uh, such changes as climate change, there is the danger of an authoritarian streak here and that maybe Trump has, is doing us a favor. We have the clown instead of the dictator. What's that's your a, thoughts on that? It's an interesting argument. Uh, and and yeah, I think you're right about you're You're right, but I'm, I may be not quite as uh, comfortable with it as you are. In other words, yes, I, I think Trump is somebody. Gail Collins said, look, if gardening got big applause, at rallies, 70 percent of his speeches would be about mulch. You know, he really is somebody who's playing to the galleries. He's kind of stumbled onto a set of ideas, some of which are ideas that I think, you know, he has held in the past. But he's 
he's basically been focus grouping these ideas at all these rallies. And then things that get, that get the most applause are the things that he really kind of keeps and emphasizes. But the, the question is, I mean, so your argument is he's kind of like a vaccine, right? The, the basic way a vaccine works is a weaker version of the infectious organism goes into your system, activates the immune response uh, so that you're you're ready to fight it off before you have to fight off the real deal, the full strength real deal. And that Trump, rather than being a real active nativist uh, crypto authoritarian guy who's going to suspend the First Amendment and start locking up journalists and and all this stuff, which I actually can totally picture him doing, but that he isn't that he's essentially an entertainer. Uh, who's been taken more seriously than he ever expected to be. Uh, and we're getting a chance to use him like a vaccine, to activate, activate our immune responses to somebody like this. Uh, and, and so we'll be that much more prepared or never have to be prepared for somebody more genuinely scary than that. Well, I mean, I guess my question is, how emboldened do all these other people feel, the David Dukes of the world, the, the people who really are infected with ugly degrees of nativism, whom, as you say, Aiden, they've been here all along. Uh, they've just never had quite as public a champion before. So, you know, I don't know. Well, look, we survived the late 60s, early 70s. So we survived George Wallace. Uh, I think we're going to survive Donald Trump, too. Um, and so interesting point. I don't know if I can quite double down on it with you. All right. So there's this guy who's been sending me these really interesting emails uh, for quite a while now. His name is John. Uh, the emails always say, listen more. Uh, the premise of the emails is that uh, John has been spending quite a bit of time just sort of asking people why they believe what they believe, in particular, in particular asking Trump supporters why they're supporting Trump. So uh, I asked him if he could possibly do this, if he could call in today, because uh, he's been doing the kind of field reporting that probably the press should do even more than we do. Uh, and so, John, uh, welcome to our conversation. Hey, Colin. How are you? Good. So I, I'm sure you have your own take on this or your own favorite way of talking about the people to whom you have spoken. So tell us about them. Well, I mean, uh, you know, whenever a few weeks ago when you were talking about how perplexed you were about the rise of Trump, you know, that this would even happen. And, and it was so poignant, Colin, because you know, you got to the point where you said, maybe we just need to listen more, you know? Mm. And I was just taken by that. But um, the sort of weird positive about Donald Trump that I found is there's something a little bit unreal and comic about him. Mm -hmm. And so unlike uh, bringing up Obamacare or um, abortion or the gun issue, you can bring him up in public mm -hmm. uh, with total strangers. So I basically just go uh, to anybody, uh, you know, what do you think of this Trump guy? And I don't let them know where I'm coming from. And and uh, right away, you've got a dialogue. Yes. So when you do that, what do people say? Well, um, you know, the, the, the sort of beautiful thing about it is, um, you know, we're so uh, data-driven, and mm. there's so little face-to-face -face contact. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, that's why I've been sending you those notes, because I try not to paraphrase mm -hmm. what anyone says, but, but put it down verbatim. But the first... The first thing you notice is people's body language and their facial expression. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, face to face, they'll, they'll retract from you or draw forward or make a face, a sour face, and then, you know, either start to defend their point. And I try not to. The hard thing with the listen more <laughs> thing is to listen more yeah. and not interject when someone is totally off base, you know, and try to correct or educate. Mm -hmm. And, um, but, you know, if I were to paraphrase things, you know, I would say the real problem is we're, we're not divided out here in the world at all. 
uh, the middle class is not remotely divided, but we are being divided. Mm-hmm. And by that I mean we're afraid to discuss politics publicly. I couldn't do the same thing, like I said, if I brought up Obamacare. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh, veins would pop out of necks and everything else. But because Trump is, is sort of this dark comic, um, it you, you're allowed to do it in all these social situations that you normally wouldn't. And uh, the point being is that, I mean, I have a gallery in Torrington, and I can talk politics in the gallery mm-hmm. because people are not, they don't feel like they're going to lose something. I'll lose business, <laughs> but they won't. But um, the middle class is in desperate, desperate shape out here, and we can't negotiate if we cannot speak to one another. And have you, when, when you talk to people, and you, it hasn't just been in Connecticut, I think you've been elsewhere talking to people yeah, as well. Also. Yeah, and and when you talk to people who are Trump supporters, do they say things that surprise you or make you think, ah, oh, well, I never really thought about it that way? Well, um, you know, one fellow came to the gallery and and uh, the pain and sort of economic desperation and the, and the numbers are just not adding up for the middle class. Um, you know, and he just went on this long soliloquy. I think I, I sent that to you. Um, but it was very beautiful in his, you know, we sort of come full circle. And basically, you know, we've gone from, you know, three or four years ago, eight years ago, anybody I talked to, you know, out working construction was said, don't need no government. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was it. Now that has totally changed. Uh, he wants government. Mm-hmm. He wants government to do something. That's a huge sea change yeah. uh, for a Republican-based, um, you know, the, the working-class base. He just doesn't know what. Right. And, and Donald Trump, he is saying we're going a direction. And, and he's speaking that forcefully. And, and there's something very appealing uh, on that level. John, the, the emails you've been sending me are fascinating. I hope you'll continue to do that and continue to talk to people. I think you're having a pretty good adventure, too, from what I can tell. Well, uh, um, you know, there's the, the other thing is that some people just have the political gene, mm-hmm. and you probably have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll put a quarter in, and a person literally can talk all night. Yeah. I don't know why that particular person, but I probably have that, too. So, <laughs> All right. Well, listen, okay. keep sending me the, the field notes. They're great. Uh, This is John who's been sending me Listen More. That's what he calls them. All right. So we're going to take another break. We're going to come back. We're going to do a final segment. We've got a lot of people on the board here. So Ann and Susan and Tim and Brendan and Debbie from Florida. Oh, yeah. We'll try to get to all of you. To the radio for my favorite call-in show. What's my opinion? You want to know who you're going to have to listen Hey, great show. I'd like to talk about Ryan Lochte. No, wait, I'm not a caller. I got momentarily confused. Today's show was produced by Katie Talarski, Josh Nalea, and me, Kion Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tom Snyder. Never miss an episode of our show. They're all at WNPR.org slash Colin. And you can subscribe to us at iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Find us on Facebook at The Colin McEnroe Show. On tomorrow's show, we're back with another live show featuring campaign news and other surprises. And now back to Colin. Or maybe we'll just do this again. This is really fun. We've got lots of calls. Um, just before I go back to the phones here, I just want to quickly just say something that I think is important in terms of the overall strategy uh, of this campaign. It is one of the reasons why, and so a number of the people who are waiting to talk want to talk about how this doesn't really seem to be an actual campaign. So 
I was listening to an interview with Stuart Stevens, and he's uh, a Republican strategist who's worked on, I think, five presidential cycles, something like that. Uh, And the stuff that he was saying, I thought, made a lot of sense and is worth going over. So just two quick things. One of them is, if you are running a campaign for a party that lost in the previous cycle, one of the first things that you have to do, if it's a real campaign, is look at the previous cycle and think, how did we lose? Why why did we lose and how can we improve on the numbers that cost us the last election? So, I mean, and you know, this is not rocket science. What happened to the uh, Republicans was that they did incredibly well with white voters, but that wasn't enough. And in fact, they outperformed Ronald Romney, outperformed Ronald Reagan uh, with white, white voters. But that wasn't good enough to win this time. It was a landslide for Reagan. It's not enough to win now because, in fact, the whole complexion of the country, literally the complexion of the country, has changed. So you have to improve among the voters that you didn't do as well with. And until like four days ago, Donald Trump had showed no interest in doing that whatsoever. And then the other thing that you really have to do is identify the weaknesses of your opponent and go after them and keep the spotlight on them. Stop creating a lot of crazy news about yourself uh, and, and create news and keep the spotlight on the four or five ways in which you think your opponent is vulnerable. And that would not include weird, crappy Breitbart conspiracy theories that, you know, Hillary Clinton has some hidden illness that we don't know about. And no, no, no. I mean, really, I'm planning to vote for Hillary Clinton, but I could give you four or five good talking points that would make it would make for a pretty uh, interesting campaign against her. And then you just keep you keep the lights up on those. You don't keep swinging the spotlight over to all kinds of irrelevant stuff. And and that's why this feels like it's not a real campaign just because they're not doing that. Uh, all right, so we've got a lot of people calling in here. We're going to go next to uh, Ann in East Haddam. Hi, Ann. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Um, I just wanted to dovetail on a comment that you made at the top of the hour, which was sort of a speculation about perhaps a media enterprise, given the shakeup that he's had at his campaign. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to add the point that I think that um, Rupert Murdoch's sons have never been particularly happy with Ailes, mm-hmm. and I think that they want it to go more towards the middle. And so that far right um, network or attitude is up for the picking. And I think I'm not a Trump fan. I'm not a Fox News fan. I'm not a Breitbart fan. But this is a brilliant move. Yeah, I, I that that point has been I've seen that point made in a couple of uh, different places. Uh, I think we've got a bunch of people who are talking a little bit about the same thing. Let's get a Debbie from Florida on the air. And then then I might add, add a thought or two to that. Hi, Debbie, you're on the air. Yeah, I kind of was thinking the same thing that, you know, his way of winning, even if he loses, is setting up a media empire. Yeah. I've heard some talk about, you know, getting a subscription from his followers and setting up Trump TV. Right. He is going to know he would he, he, he would have a media empire. Right. I mean, every campaign involves email farming. So he has got a huge email farm now. He's got a lot of people that, first of all, that he can talk to just through the kind of earned media stuff that he's done. He's got a lot of people that he can reach. And and Anne is right that there's there is that tension at Fox, although it's important to remember that Fox is, I believe, the most successful cable network of any kind. It's not just the most uh, successful news cable network. I believe it's the most uh, successful cable channel uh, of its type. I mean, of any type. So it's, it's more po- popular than, say, the Disney Channel. Uh, so whatever they do with Fox, they're not going to change it too much unless, of course, they do face a little bit more competition. I, I think, actually, if, if there's some kind of fusion Trump-Breitbart 
you know, Roger Ailes enterprise that comes out of this campaign. The people who should be worried are like Alex Jones and Glenn Beck and people like that, that, you know, that Fox ultimately probably is going to do pretty well. Although it's, it's interesting to me the way the the, the next generation of, of these families, they are going to be different. The Murdoch kids uh, appear not to be quite as interested in running a hard right operation. And I just got through reading the fascinating profile of Jared Kushner and Ivanka uh, Trump uh, in The New Yorker. And it's clear they're not like that either, (laughs) you know, that when all of this kind of fades away, um, the next generation of these people, these families, they're going to be very different. All right. Here's uh, Susan in West Hartford. Hi, Susan. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Um, I think one of the more interesting and gorge-raising um, aspects of this campaign has been the reaction of a lot of the mainstream Republican figures. Uh, obviously, the Bushes and that Romney have come out you know, strongly against Trump. But um, somebody before mentioned Paul Ryan. Now, there's a guy who always projected himself as being thoughtful, obviously conservative, but thoughtful, um, you know, trying to see his job as public service trying to be a, a modern politician in the, in, the, in a certain sense. Um, and presumably he wants to have an ongoing political career. I mean, he's only, what, 45 or 46. If, as I fervently hope, Trump loses, how does Paul Ryan go forward from, from the day after the election when he so clearly put his, his party ahead of his country? Yeah, he nibbled around the edges. He rebukes Trump every once in a while, but he has not rescinded his endorsement. How does Paul Ryan go forward from that? You know, I actually, first of all, I wouldn't want to be Paul Ryan. I don't think Paul Ryan wanted to be Speaker of the House. He certainly indicated that he didn't want to be Speaker of the House and then kind of agreed to be drafted. Um, I think he's been in a terrible position this whole way because in a conventional campaign, which I concede this is not, There's just no room for what you're talking about. There's no room for the Republican Speaker of the House to actively denounce and withdraw his support from the Republican nominee. I mean, Ronald Reagan famously said that the only real cardinal rule is speak no ill of another Republican. So, you know, in the world as we knew it, the pre-Bizarro planet universe, you just can't do the thing that you're talking about. But obviously this this isn't that world. We are on the Bizarro planet. So what should Paul Ryan do? And I think what should Paul Ryan do can be, this is something we've talked about in the past on this show, can be expanded to what what should Reince Priebus do? What should Mitch McConnell do? What should a whole bunch of people do? And the reality is, if in fact the Trump death spiral continues, which is the more likely, for all the reasons I just explained, you can't, I mean, because you, you, to the extent that this, is, this, this even is a campaign, you can't run a campaign that actually expands on the flaws and liabilities and deficits of the previous cycle without making up any ground anywhere else. So if the death spiral continues, you know, they're going to have to create some separation and they're going to have to do it in a way, I mean, you know, you talk about his future political career. Ordinarily, the calculation would be, what future do I have if I'm the Speaker of the House who stabbed my own party's nominee in the back, right? Ordinarily, that would be a problem for you going forward. Uh, Now you're saying, Susan, and and not unreasonably, what future does he have if he's the Republican Speaker of the House who didn't stab his party's nominee in the back? Um, And that's why it probably sucks to be Paul Ryan right now. But what they'll have to do is create some daylight partly because they just don't want to lose so many down-ticket races. I mean, I actually think even now 
the Republican National Committee, its chairman, Reince Priebus, and probably some of these high-profile establishment Republicans, they're, they're in a different business right now. And the business that they're in, in fact, I got um, uh, an email from the Republican National Committee. I have like all these email addresses and I think I get emails and I don't think people even know who I am. But um, I got one today that was sort of a it was it wasn't about Trump. It was about Republican Hispanics and a message to Republican Hispanics. And, and I think you're going to see more and more of that kind of thing where the Republican National Committee thinks, well, there's no point in trying to harmonize our message with his. We don't even know what he's talking about most of the time, and we certainly don't know what he's going to do when he gets up in the morning tomorrow. So we've got to figure out how to save down-ticket races. Uh, we don't want to lose Portman in Ohio and Rubio in Florida you know, and Toomey in Pennsylvania and Ayat in New Hampshire. And I mean, we're going to lose some of those uh, Senate seats. But we, want, we don't want to lose all of them. So let's start creating a message that without completely stabbing Trump in the back, because he is the party nominee and a lot of people voted for him in the primaries. Um, so it's not like he's the illegitimate uh, Republican nominee. He's the actual Republican nominee. So without completely trashing our own party's nominee, let's create some daylight. Let's create some kind of space so that we can say, oh, no, this person who's running for Senate in this particular state, that is not Donald Trump. That's a completely different person and does a person who does not subscribe to many of the policies you might find alarming. All right. So we have to stop here. And I'm so sorry to Brendan and Nathaniel. Susan, we got Susan on the air. Tim from Plymouth. Special thanks to Lydia Brown, the amazing Lydia Brown. She's been manning the phones. A lot of people calling in. She's done her usual fabulous job. Thanks to Katie Tlarski, too. Kion Wolf, Josh Nalea, everybody else who helped out. We'll be back tomorrow with some kind of Betsy Kaplan jam. So you know that's going to be bad. my 58,423-word essay about Beyonce's Lemonade. Am I still on the air? Yeah, you've been talking so long, we're now in the rerun.